Anyways, if you'll stand with me as we read Psalm 119, starting in verse 169. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. And I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Father, I pray that we would lift our cries up to you. And as the psalmist is doing in this passage, that we would even cry out that you would hear our prayers. Father, that we would not be ashamed to bring our prayers to you and to remind you that we have prayed those prayers. And Lord, to see you work in our lives. Lord, we believe that you are the God of the universe, that your word does not end, that it is an everlasting truth that cannot be changed. And it's because of that that we're here, because we believe you are God, that you have delivered us from the power of darkness, that you are our salvation. And because of that, Lord, we are thankful. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to honor you and glorify you this morning. Lord, open our ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive your word. Cause your word to implant in us a seed that would bring forth much fruit. Lord, cause us to be your people. Give me clarity this morning to preach your word. Father, I pray that your word would be truth and water in the desert for us even this morning. Lord, help our children to hear your words this morning, that they would begin to ask questions about the truth of your word, about the gospel, about what is necessary in life. And give us parents wisdom in how to train and to teach them. Thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can be seated. Well, the psalmist has been winding down, and I feel like this is the finale. If you've ever been to Thunder Over Louisville, there's always like a slow winding down, and then they have the big explosion at the very end where you can just feel the fireworks exploding even into your chest. And as we've seen the last few weeks, the psalmist has spoken about his love for the Word. And really the treasure that God's Word is to him. And how because he treasures God's Word, it has created a life that abides in Christ, that abides in God and His Word. And because of that, when we come to this section, the Tav section, the last section of Psalm 119, we see a culmination of all the Psalms, or all Psalm 119 in these passages. And I really I see it most in 176. So we will actually start reading in 176 and, and go back. Because 176 is really the, the culmination of all that the psalmist has said in Psalm 119. He starts, he says in verse 176, I have wandered like a stray sheep. 
Now, when you hear this phrasing, what does it make you think about? All ye like sheep have gone astray. We, we know that passage, right? That's very much in relation to the psalmist. It's not by accident. We are like sheep. Sheep don't stray and find their way back. They get lost. I've been around enough sheep to know they're very ignorant creatures. <laughs> very ignorant. And they, they don't have the ability to think, well, maybe this is a bad idea. This cavern that I'm walking into, you know, there's probably not foxes down there. There's probably not anything that wants to eat me down there. No, they just keep walking. But this sheep, though it finds itself lost, doesn't find its way back to God. And we, before Christ saved us, are very much like this sheep. And sometimes even in our walk with the Lord, we find ourselves in places and we're like, how in the world did I get here? And we don't even know the way back. And that's what the psalmist is saying. I, I'm like this sheep. I, I have wandered far from you. So he's, he's found him stay, himself in a state where he knows he's lost, but he doesn't know how to get back. So what does he turn to? Does he turn to his own? Does he get out his GPS and be like, okay, uh, last time I saw Jesus, he was here. Or the, the Lord, he was, he was here. No, he doesn't. He, he doesn't do that. He cries out to his master, the shepherd, the great shepherd. Right? He says, seek your servant. Not, I will seek you. Yes, he's, he's said throughout Psalm 119 that he has sought the word and he, he's meditated on the word. He's been obeying the word and, and following after God. But in reality, the psalmist will, realizes that it is only by God's grace that he will be found. Then we think of the parable of the 99 and the one lost sheep. When Jesus said he goes out and finds that lost sheep and brings it back. This is a, a great picture here. The psalmist is not saying, seek me because I'm a lost sheep. Seek me because I'm your servant. I belong. That's the key word. I am yours. You own me. My life is yours. You are the Lord and master of my life. He would not be a servant or this word can also be translated slave of God unless he belonged to him. I am yours. I am for your pleasure and your glory. That is why you should seek me. Not because, just because I'm a sheep, because I'm your sheep. You're dumb, ignorant sheep, but you are my master. So we see his state, he's found himself lost, then he, he is requesting and asking God to come and save him. He's relying on God's grace, not on his own ability to find his way back, because he knows, I'm a sheep, I don't know how to find my way back. And why in the world would he believe that the master would want to seek him? Well, that's the third part of 176. Because he says, for, remember when we were doing Romans, anytime you see for, that's a phrase that means this is the reason why. The reason why he believes God should seek him as his servant is because your commandments I have not forgotten. The psalmist remembers what God's word says and based on that he knows and believes that God will seek him out. Because he knows. He hasn't forgotten God's words. 
That's the basis on why he's crying out to God to seek him because he knows what God has said and he knows God will do it. We saw the everlasting value and treasure of God's word two weeks ago. So the psalmist, when he was lost, he remembered. He hadn't forgotten the commandments. He remembered, oh yes, this is what God said. He would draw us back. Remember the promise in Isaiah and Jeremiah? He put hooks in in the jaws of his people and bring them back to him. This very similar picture. The psalmist realizes as we should, because we know God's word and we have not forgotten what God has commanded and has spoken to us. When we remember those things, we, with confidence, like the psalmist, say, seek your servant, Lord. I may be way out here feeling like there's no hope. I know I'm on the edge of a cliff and it seems like there's no way out. I've got wolves surrounding me and there's one way out that doesn't include being lamb chops. But God is saying to us, I believe through the psalmist this morning, seek me by crying out for my salvation. Because if you break this psalm... this section, into four verses, the first four verses, 169 through 172, we could say the the big um, category is Lord hear. Lord hear. And secondly, in 173 to 176, we can say Lord do or Lord act. So if we start in 169, he says, Lord, or let my cry draw near before you. This is a psalmist who has been praying. He's already let a cry out, but he's continuing not only to say that prayer, but he's saying, Lord, you remember that prayer I sent up? Let it come before your very presence. Let you hear that word. He realizes that it is God who allows those words to come before him to even find value in his eyes. So when the Lord says, let my cry, or when the psalmist says, let my cry, he's, he's, it's like he's asking for permission. In Hebrew, it's what's called a jussif. I don't know how we use that in English, but essentially it's a request. It is a cry. He's crying that his cry will be heard. Right? It's a prayer. And it's, I think of this word cry, I think of what are things that cry? Babies, wounded people, those who have been hurt. That's usually when my kids cry, Right? They see a little bit of blood on their skin and suddenly the world is about to end. You've probably never dealt with that. so Or they've got a scratch that didn't result in blood, but they're sure that a Band-Aid will fix everything. And they're going to cry till the Band-Aid is on the wound. But just think about that cry. It's, it's a cry of desperation, a cry of, I need you. But the psalmist hasn't just cried. He is crying about his crying. He's saying, Lord, you heard, you you know I've cried already, but I need it to come to your very presence as though it's Esther. It's as though Esther is his cry, if you take that picture. And Esther is going before the king in hopes that he will hear her request. It's kind of like the picture I see here. He wants his prayer to be like Esther, 
being able to come before the presence of God in his throne room and find a place there. Because he knows that if if that prayer is allowed into God's presence, if God hears his prayer, that something's going to happen. His prayer being heard will result in deliverance and understanding. Because he says, O Lord, according to your word calls me to understand. Not according to the wisdom of this world. Not according to Fox or CNN or whatever news media source you happen to find. Not according to YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or Snapchat, TikTok. I don't even know. I mean, there's so many anymore. But no matter what your source is, God's word is the source that he is turning to. According to your word, not what man is saying. I want my understanding to come from your word. I want my ability to live in this life to be according to your word. And I cannot do that if I don't understand it as you have taught it. Isn't that incredible? He he wants God to hear his cry. And in the midst of that, to give him understanding. Is it possible that in the midst of his situation, he is looking at all the situation and he's thinking, there is no way. He's that, that stray sheep. And he's surrounded by hungry animals that haven't eaten for days. He's encountered a, a bear with a couple cubs that are, haven't eaten since last winter or last fall. And he needs understanding. And the psalmist also sees, according to God's word, that God's word promises understanding to those who seek the face of God. Those who love him. And it made me begin to think, how is it that understanding of God's word is imparted? How do we receive understanding? Is it something we attain? Can I, can I go up to the seminary that I went to and read every book in that library, which is a lot of books, by the way. If I read every one of those books and read the Bible a thousand times, would I have understanding of God's Word? Just by that very act. No. I would have a lot of knowledge. I might have a lot of Insight, but in reality, understanding comes from the Holy Spirit. We can say we know God's Word, but if God has not revealed His Word to us so that we understand it, that it's not only just facts and information, but is actually life-changing words, then we don't have understanding. We need God to give us understanding. And the psalmist understood this. I know myself, I have to be careful because I enjoy reading. There's nothing wrong with reading. But it's easy many times to to want to jump straight to the commentary instead of reading the Word and letting God give you an understanding. And then you can look at a commentary. It's not that commentaries aren't helpful and God doesn't use them, but they're not inspired. And there are men of God that I've read who I know God used in their books. People like Tozer, um, a more recent one. I've been reading some Francis Schaeffer lately. But they saw things because they knew God's word. They had a relationship with God. They loved the Word. They loved the Lord. And so their, their writing is just an extension of God's Word. Is it inspired in the same way? No. So as Christians, we need to be like the psalmist saying, Lord, I, I can't understand this on my own. I have no innate ability to understand spiritual things. 
Right? If, if we're living in the flesh, we won't understand. It, it is only in the power of the Holy Spirit awakening, opening our eyes that we can truly understand what God's Word says. And no one comes to Christ unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. They can put on a good show. I had the sad news even, I think it was Thursday night. Thursday or Friday, a friend of mine that I know, we, had, we knew a professor at my seminary, and he has eight kids, and he just, apparently for years he'd been hiding alcohol abuse. Years. And this man, guess what class he was teaching? Family and Christian discipleship. And this man now is, he divorced his wife. He's not remarried, thankfully, yet, but left his wife and some Christian college out there is willing to give him a job. This father of eight, they've adopted, half of them are adopted. And doesn't have any, from the knowledge that I know, it has no relationship in the last year. This all happened. I mean, talk about a train wreck the devil is using to not only destroy his life and his marriage, but he wants to destroy that whole family. Now, I don't know the end. His life is not over, so there's hope. That's not, I'm not saying it's the end, but how many stories do we know of of people who have a semblance of understanding God's Word, but in reality, that Word has not transformed their whole life? I'm getting ready to start a book entitled, What Then Shall We Do? It's an old, older book. Um, but it's just that word, that question, has been a big thing on my mind of late. When we say what we do about God's word, how should that affect our lives? And the author, I've read other books of his, his thought is it should transform everything, not just how you go to church. It should transform the way you work. It should transform the way you live in your community. It should transform every aspect of your life so that people cannot say, well, I didn't know they were a Christian. It should be so evident in our lives that we are Christians because we are living according to God's Word. And the more that our society rejects God, which it has done and is doing, the more... Being a Christian will look, a true Christian will look strange and be rejected by our world. We need understanding that comes from the Lord alone. We need to stop believing these people who are proclaiming all this knowledge about God's Word and all they're doing is wrapping God around some worldly theology or worldly idea or doctrine. They're, they're trying to take God and just wrap Him around something so that you can get all this money like Joel Osteen does or others like him. They want us to believe lies because they, whether they're deceived or not, are preaching a false gospel. They're not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms you at every part of your lives. didn't intend to spend that much time on 169, but as believers, we need understanding from the Lord. We cannot rely on this world. And that's why, also why we need one another, because we may think we have understanding on something, and God reveals to someone else that, hey, you know, that person has been reading their, their Bible and, and God has illuminated something to them. And, and guess what? That, that iron sharpens your iron and you realize, oh, well, I, I didn't totally understand this part. God is, God is working with us together, bringing about His work. So 
So again, he's, he's lifting up his cry. And then in verse 170, it's a very similar, it's almost identical phrasing. It's just different words. He says, let my plea. It's a, again, it's a very similar picture. Let my plea for mercy come unto you. This sounds almost identical to the prior verse. In the NASB, which is what I read, it says, let my supplication come before you. Right In, in both of these passages, we have this idea of his cry and his supplication coming before the Lord. Like, it's though it's, it's, a, it's kind of in, um, animating to a person coming before the Lord. Let that come before you, Lord. Now, in the Psalms and in Hebrew poetry, why is there repetition? For emphasis. So it's identical ideas just reworded. And this is an emphasis on his need. It is a desperation. It is an intercession. He is not quitting. He is not giving up just because it doesn't seem like God answered yet. He's going beyond and saying, Lord, I've lifted up these prayers. Now I'm just going to ask you to hear them. Sometimes in the faith walk, we want to just make one prayer and then we're done. Now, I'm not trying to be critical. But here we see the psalmist going beyond that. He's letting his cry out and he's praying about his cry. So maybe we should start praying, Lord, you know what we've been praying about this person or this situation. Hear it. I know what your word says. We know what your word says. Lord, hear our cry. Let it come before your very presence. Because we have case point right here in Psalm 119 that this is a way that the psalmist prayed. We need to intercede for one another and for the situations that we're encountering. Don't give up. Just because it doesn't seem like it's come before the Lord yet. Continue to press in. Lord, I prayed this prayer. I believe if there's something that I need to change in my heart about this, Show me. Otherwise, I'm going to keep praying that you hear my prayer. That you act upon that prayer. Because God, your word says. This is why God's word must be our delight. Because if it is not our delight, it will not be our constant thought. And our constant source of strength. And when we remember God's word and remind him of it, we see what the psalmist is talking about. So the psalmist first desires understanding. And then secondly, here in 170, he says, Deliver me according to your word. Not according to my works, not according to what I've done, but according to your word, right? He's... You know, when we get to 176, we know he's saying, I'm your servant. But he is crying out to God based on God's word. He knows that he cannot get out of this situation. It, it's because of his sin that he's in the place that he is. He's in this place where he cannot get out. And there's only one way. I can imagine this being Ziklag. The men are about to stone him. He's lost everything. They're all angry at him for taking them up to try and fight against Saul with the Philistines. But what does it say? In, in that uh, First Samuel, it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. How in the world would he do that? 
I believe through the word, through being reminded of who God is, what he's done, and what he said. Because he's, he's desiring God to hear his plea based on God's mercy. Right? He says, let my plea for mercy come unto you according to your word. Deliver me. This is all on God. God is the one seeking. Right? This is what the, the, the cry is about. God, you are the only hope I have. There is no other hope. I'm your servant. You alone can deliver me. Do we bring our requests to God because He's our only hope or because He's an alternative to another option? Now, we have financial issues. Are we going to the bank and then to God and just deciding which one's going to help us? Is that how we deal with situations in our life? Or is God truly our only hope? There will be a time, and I, I say this not because I'm a prophet, but because I, I see what's happening, where God will have to be everything or nothing. Because being a Christian will no longer be popular. And to do what is right, you will have to turn to God alone because the world will require something from you that you cannot give. And that's your allegiance. I know it's not come to that point yet, but as believers, I believe that as we hear God's word, we should be encouraged to make God everything. To rely on Him for all our needs. To who are we calling for deliverance? Our nation, there are many Christians in our nations who, who believe that if we can just change the president or the Congress, or the judges, we'll, we'll be okay. No, our nation has rejected God. The only hope our nation has is Jesus Christ. If Christ does not transform our nation, we will be judged. We've been killed, murdering babies by the millions. If that's not enough blood... I just think about all the prophecy in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the, the, the later prophets. Constantly, God is getting on His people because they oppressed whom? The helpless. And here we're murdering the innocent and helpless. All for selfish reasons. And we act like there's no big deal. I say editorially. As a nation. We try to argue for abortion as though it's some kind of good. It's sad. It, it breaks my heart because I think of the situations and some of the imagery that you see of how close to birth these babies are being murdered. And it's heartbreaking. Because there are babies walking, there are adults walking this earth today that were born at the same time that these babies were murdered. It's, it's yeah. Again, not a part of my sermon, but the when you begin to reject God as a nation then it becomes all about human what what benefits human beings not what benefits god what god has said there there's no longer truth and so it's easy to get to the point where there are nations in europe and i've talked about this before who support and allow infanticide killing babies 
out of the womb because they're not perfect. I mean, just look at, I think it's in Iceland where if you have a certain gene, they essentially tell you you need to abort this baby so we don't have any children with Down syndrome. This has literally happened and happening. We need the Lord because our world is turning more and more away from God, especially Western culture. It's funny, a culture that has been built on God's Word is being destroyed because we have rejected God's Word. The psalmist continues in 171. His cries have gone out. Right? Verse 169 and 170. Now he says, let praise pour forth from my lips. This idea of, in 171, in the NASB it says, let my lips utter praise. That's not sufficient in my opinion. The, the word translated utter is actually the idea of gushing and pouring out like a spring. Like I can't hold it in. Is that what our tongue, our lips are saying, doing? Are we so transformed by God that all we want to do is praise Him. I'm not saying you walk around and just say, Praise the Lord everywhere. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but maybe that would be okay. If that's what the Lord's leading you to do. But His lips can't help. He can't hold it back. The praise is just coming out of Him. And why in the world does the psalmist have lips that are pouring out praise to God? How? Why? Well, verse, the second half of 171, he says, For, again, this is a ground clause, this is why, your, you teach me your statutes. So he has praise in his heart because God is teaching him. Is that us? Or is it because God does what we want him to do? Isn't that usually when we praise God? Not that we shouldn't praise Him then. But in this case, the psalmist is praising God because God is teaching him. Because God is giving him understanding. We should rejoice in that more than anything. Just think about new believers. Especially newer believers. Like, when God has opened their eyes by the Holy Spirit, they're just reading the Word and they're just like, Wow, I never saw that before. That's amazing. I can't believe that the Bible says that. It is, and that's all they want to talk about. And that should be us. Just because we're old in the Lord, for lack of better phraseology, just because we've spent 20 years with the Lord, or 30, or 40, or whatever, maybe 5, that should not decrease the praise that we have to God that He's opened our eyes, that He's teaching us, He's guiding us, He's giving us wisdom and victory over the devil. This word praise is actually the title of the book of Psalms. Psalms is not the Hebrew... um, word for the book. The Hebrew word for praises or praise is the word that is the title of the book of Psalms. So it's as though he's saying, let Psalms pour forth from my lips. Let praises to God come before him. May God's teaching us give us such delight. 
Right? The psalmist is crying out in the first verse for God to give him understanding. And now in verse 71, he's praising God that he has been teaching him and opening his eyes to the truth. So that's his lips. Now verse 172, he talks about his tongue. He says, let my tongue sing your word. So he's praising God for teaching him his statutes. And now in verse 172, he's wanting his tongue to sing the praises of God based on his word. I just want to sing your word. I think about songs that are based on God's word. And we've sung many of those in our, like, essentially word for word put to music. And it seems that, in my experience, those are some of the most powerful songs that I've ever sung and can remember. Something about seeing God's word. And, and I think also the Old Testament, the rabbis, what did they do? They sang the word. That's how they memorized the Bible. They would sing it. So in the Hebrew uh, text, there are what are called canticle marks. They're accent marks so that when they would sing it, they would know how to sing it and how to kind of like a hymn. And they would know, they could follow you, a, a good rabbi could follow you and know exactly where you were based on what you were singing. That was how well they knew the word by memory. They didn't have verses. They didn't have chapters. But they would say, oh, you're at word number. Can you imagine knowing the word number? You're at word number blah, blah, blah in this book. That's how well the rabbis knew it. So I can just imagine the psalmist just singing the scriptures to himself as he's, you know, maybe as a young boy, he would sing the Torah as he watched sheep. I don't know. We don't know that part of his history. We know that he loved the word of God and we know that the Jews would sing the word. Maybe when he was walking in the palace, he would sing the word. I don't know. I think I I would be better off just singing Taylor Swift, you know? So much more valuable. No, I'm, I'm joking. But isn't that how the word, many in the church say, oh, I, I like Christian songs, but they just, don't, they just don't reach me. Have you heard that before? I have. So they're listening to trash, and they wonder why their life is upside down. This is a pure a picture if you can't sing the word if the, if the word of God does not transform your life then yeah you're not going to be reached by the word in singing or worship music it's not going to be your heart your heart's going to be listening to these secular artists that have heart problems and they don't know where to turn they're hopeless and have nothing to give like most country songs no offense to I mean, I like some country music, the good ones, the, the few good ones. <laughs> Not very many, just so you know. But it's amazing how much music is hopeless. I just, just challenge you. Turn the radio on and flip through the songs. Not that you don't stay on any song too long because it might be problematic for your soul. But just flip through and, and, and hear the words and the hopelessness and there's no actual relief from the situation they're in. And then listen to some worship songs. You're like, wow, I can't believe the world loves this junk. It's got a nice beat maybe. It's got decent or- 
orchestration or whatever, but it's like there's a, a famous singer named Adele, if you haven't heard of her. Really great voice, but all of her songs are super depressed. Just go read lyrics from... So you're just like, man, can you imagine if she sang Christian songs and was born again? How different her life and her songs would be? Because all her songs are about breakups and, and how depressed she is. And it's like, it's sad. It really, it's like a country song with uh, an opera voice almost. It's, it's yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm bringing in a lot of stuff from outside, but I really, when we look at what the world is promoting in, in music and television and movies, the more and more I am pushed away and desiring what God has because He actually offers hope. When you're at the place where these country songs are written, you have hope to turn to, not going and saying, well, everybody else is dealing with it, so it must be, you know, it just must be something I have to handle. No, God gave you hope. He gave you His Word. Sing His Word. You know why the psalmist is singing His Word? Second half. He uses the word for again. For all your commandments are righteous. Not just righteous, righteousness. They're just. They they are perfect. Everything that God says will come to pass. Is trustworthy is faithful, is truthful, is everlasting. That's why the psalmist is singing them. He's singing them because he knows that that is where true justice and righteousness occurs and is written. If we don't believe that, we won't sing it like it's true. I think about there's a there's an album that I really like and it's the Psalms. It's by a group called Chain and Chain and they just take psalms and turn them into music. And the reason I like them, I know some people think they're throaty, I think, or no I don't know. The way they sing is somewhat loud. But what I like about them is their songs, when they're sung, the way they sing is as though it is real for them. It's, they're not writing these songs just to make money. They're writing these songs because they believe them. And you can tell in the way they sing. It's not just a, a performance for them. It is real life. And that's why I love the songs that I've, I've heard them sing from especially the book of Psalms because they're so impactful to them personally. Just like if I come up here and preach and act like this doesn't matter to me, you're all going to leave and be like, why in the world did he even preach this morning? It doesn't even matter to him. But it does. The Word of God is valuable. It is without comparison. There's nothing on this earth that compares to the truthfulness of God's Word. And we get to serve the God who wrote that word. And he has given it to us so that we would have hope and peace and joy no matter what the situation might bring. So we see the psalmist crying out to the Lord to hear not only his cries, but his praises and his songs. And now in verse 173, we begin to see him calling out to the Lord to do something. He says, 
Let your hand be ready to help me. Let your hand be ready. That, that is why he's crying out. He needs the Lord's help. But it's interesting. I like how the NASB translated this because in the Hebrew, this word to be ready, it's a state of readiness. God is constantly in a position to help. That's what he's asking for. No matter what situation comes my way, Lord, I, I want you to have your hand ready to help. Ready to come to my assistance. If we translate it literally, it's let your hand exist to help me. To be in a state of readiness. I mean, that's a, that's a prayer I, I like. I can pray that every day. Lord, let your hand be ready to help me today in whatever situation comes my way because why does the psalmist want him to help him? Because he says in verse 170, the second half, for your precepts I have chosen. What's he saying? God, I have chosen to follow you. So you are the only hand that can help me now. I'm not going to lie to preserve myself in a job. I'm not going to tell the IRS that I made less money than I did. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be a Christian who has made the decision that my life will be lived as though God's word is true. When we make that decision as Christians... To live as though God's word is true, we need his hand to be ready to help us. Because in our world, following God, no matter the cost, is not easy. And we'll want to quit. But we must remember that there is a way of escape. There is victory in Jesus, no matter what the situation may be. So we need to be crying out with the psalmist, let your hand be ready to help me. I like that. Maybe we should make a poster and put it on our walls. Just a reminder. Maybe put it on the ceiling when we wake up. It's the first thing we see. A good reminder that we can't change our world. But through Christ in us, we can see our lives transformed and the world around us be glorifying God in our lives, whether they like it or not. Because they will say, I can't believe you have hope. Well, I know a Savior. He's in the world today. He lives in me. And I know it's, it's a song. I'm partially quoting it. But is the Lord living in us? Is He truly transforming our lives each and every day. Do we rely on his hand at every turn? He continues in 174. I long for your salvation. I long. It's like, I need it with all that I ha am. I've got to have it. Just like the deer pants for the water. It's interesting, this word salvation is the word Yeshua. Which is the Hebrew phrase for Messiah. So it's almost, I want to be careful because a lot of people like to read in things from the New Testament. But it's as though the psalmist is saying, I am longing for the Messiah, for my Messiah, for the Lord. 
Right, O oh Lord, he says, I long for your salvation, O oh Lord. Salvation in the Old Testament is the word Yeshua. It's so, so very interesting to me. So when Christ comes as Yeshua, Jesus, you have salvation walking the earth. Do we long for the salvation of the Lord? Or are we longing for something else? Because when we are saved by the Lord, it is a transformational experience. And it doesn't stop the day that the Lord brings you into His kingdom. It is a lifelong transformation. I've said this in the past, but there's theologies out there that are depriving God glory by saying, well, God's word is good, but, you know, there's people that are oppressed. You want to fix oppression? See God save that nation. Save those people. It doesn't matter the situation you're in. If Christ transforms the lives of the oppressors and the oppressees, you're going to see a transformed world. But if Christ does not transform, it doesn't matter how much money you give to the oppressed or how much power you take from those who are oppressing. It will continue to cycle. I don't know if any of you have watched Animal Farm or seen or read the book. It's a critique of communism. But what happens? They take the power, I think it's from the farmers. It's been a while since I've read or watched the movie. But they take the power from those in power and they, th they have this idea that, well, if we take the power from these people, then suddenly everything, everyone will have equal power. Well, what happens? The pigs become the dictators. Shockingly. <laughs> But they become totalitarian despots, the pigs. And they're sending off the horse to get turned into glue. And they're worse than the, the previous, the farmers. The whole point is, the, the point of the whole book is to say communism doesn't work. Because all people, whether the writer was intentionally saying this or not, are sinners. And that's the thing in our world. When Christ is ignored as the only means of salvation, and we think that our world is naturally good, we ignore original sin and, and the propensity or desire for men to sin, we cannot see transformation in our world. It is only when Christ transforms the heart that somebody truly changes. Because you might be able to convince a power-hungry person to act nice for a while if it's to their benefit. We have a case in point in Russia right now, probably. Someone who act nice for a while, but now we're seeing his true nature. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care. He thinks he can get away with whatever he wants. Again, I'm not trying to be political or any thing like that. I'm just looking at our world that we're living in and we see these examples of men and even women who when they get power because they are sinners it transforms for the bad their society. But as Christians when Christ is the salvation we long for and He is all that we need our lives and the lives of those around us will be transformed. They may not become believers, but they will recognize the change in our lives. They will recognize that Christ is Lord. But the psalmist doesn't just long for salvation. 
It says, and your law is my delight. His salvation is something he longs for, but also the law of God, God's word, his Torah, is his delight. He is turning to the Lord. He needs the Lord to work because he has come to delight in God and the salvation that he alone gives. He continues in 175, Let my soul live and let it praise. He wants not only for his soul to live, but he wants his soul to praise the Lord. He realizes that if he is to live, it is only in Christ, right? Because this idea of let is, may I live, may my soul live. So let my soul live. I need you. I, I can't do it myself. I need you to give me life. And I will praise you. The psalmist uses that throughout the book of Psalms. Multiple times he uses this idea of, if I die, who will praise you? I praise you, Lord, that I should live because you, you will get the glory. You will be praised. Do we praise the Lord? We say we have been given new life. Is it our heart's desire to praise Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him? Not only with singing, but in the way we talk about things. When people compliment us, how do we glorify God instead of taking the credit for ourselves? Yeah, I'm a hard worker, that's why. Uh, there's lots of hard workers out there who aren't believers. But how can we as believers glorify God at every turn? What do we say to them? He goes on, he says, and let your judgments help me. Let, let your decisions, Lord, help me. Let them not be judgments against me, but for my good, for your glory. Again, this is God acting, not him. He's wanting God to make decisions and decrees that would benefit his soul. So that he would praise the Lord. And we end up where we started this morning. The psalmist realizes he's like a sheep that's gone astray. He's lost. He's wandered away. But he is asking God to seek His servant because He has remembered the word of the Lord. You want to see God move in your life? Make His word a priority. Commit to meditate on His word, to memorize His word, and to obey His word. Treasure His Word like it's more valuable than anything on this earth. Because it is. Physically speaking, there's nothing of greater value. And spiritually speaking, knowing God, this is His way. He gave us His Word so we could know Him. Not so that we could use it to beat people over the head with our opinion of what the Bible says. 
No, he gave us his word so that we would have hope, we would have victory, and we would be able to live lives that honor him in holiness. But we need him to move. We need him to open in us a delight in his word, a treasuring of his word. Maybe it would be a good idea each and every day to to have that question in mind. Do I treasure you and your word today? Because if so, we will be crying out to God based on his word to move in our lives and to hear our prayers. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us your word. We th- I'm thankful, Lord, for Psalm 119. Just the beauty of a heart that has stayed on you. I pray, Lord, that myself and each person in this church would begin to experience that delight and that joy and the, a love for your word that would drive them to your word. Drive them to meditate and commit to memory your word. Father, so that we could be obedient servants. So that when we wander away like the psalmist, we will remember what your word says and cry out to you to find us and bring us back into the fold. Lord, we long for your presence. We long to know you. And I know, Lord, we will find you in your word as you illuminate it to us through your Holy Spirit. Be with this, us this day, Lord. Give us peace and joy and bless us, Lord, with your presence. Help us to live in light of your word each and every day. Pray this now in Jesus' name.